Uh, Acts chapter um, 25 is where we're going to be. And uh, as you're turning there, I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to say a specific name or sort of a category of people that it is easy for you to do good deeds for. It's easy to serve them. It's easy to do good things for uh, these people. So a name or a category of person. Okay, go. So some of you are going to have to get up and move because you've isolated yourself uh, and you need to find it. So a name of a person or a category of person that it's easy to do good deeds for. Okay. You know what's awesome? Okay, this is a good start. Um, it's really good that lots of immediate answers happen and people weren't like, good deeds? Like, what are you talking about? Or like, people it's easy to do something for? Like, I have no idea what you're talking for. So that was really good and helpful. Um, here's the truth of it, though. We won't do this, but there are also very specific names and groups of people that it's very, very difficult for you to do good deeds for. Very challenging to like think good thoughts even about them, much less serve them in some way. Isn't that true? Just nod your head with me. Okay, we're being honest this morning. Good. Um, Jesus said this, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. He said this in relationship to giving to the needy. And it's one of many, many things that Jesus taught on doing good deeds. He said a lot of things about it. In fact, he taught much about good deeds, mostly by his life, but very specifically by his words. He taught us how to do these things. And yet, huge confusion remains. Once in a while, I get called as a pastor to say, would you please come to the hospital or to meet with this person? They're on their deathbed, literally, or they're about to die, and I want to make sure they're a Christian. This is often said by a committed Christian about a family member, a friend, a neighbor, an acquaintance that they're not so sure about. And these are really interesting calls to go in on. And here's what I have found, is most of the time... When I go into the hospital and someone is laying there and they want me to have this conversation with them, the discussion will linger. I ask a lot of questions and I listen. I don't go in making pronouncements. Just like you, it's way above my pay grade to make the assessment of whether someone is saved or not. That's a heart matter. But when I go in and have these conversations, almost always, the person that I ask questions of come back at me with some manner of an answer that has to do with good deeds, things that they have done in their life. And sometimes it's not just what they've done, but they've tried their best. So it has to do with trying. And it's almost like they are facing this looming court date, and they are trying to either muster up enough good deeds in their mind, enough effort, enough good motive, enough I tried my best, or conversely, they can be really, really despairing and really concerned. There's much confusion about the role that good deeds play in the final judgment and in our everyday life. Now, as I wrote that uh, this week, I actually thought about 
some of the more recent funerals I've done. We said goodbye to our beloved Annie. Her husband is here with us this morning. We said goodbye to our beloved Linda, another member of our church family. Her husband is here with us this morning. Guys, I can't tell you how awesome it is that you're here serving with the church family. We love you. Let me tell you, those two ladies understood the role of good works and how it relates to salvation. In fact, uniquely so. I would say they are two of the most, along with my dad, they are two of the most prepared for eternity women in, in, in a church I've been a part of um, that, I can, that I can think of. Totally different than a lot of the deathbed confirmations uh, that often go on. So here's the question. What part does being good play in our salvation and in our daily life? So in every realm, I think this is true. It's really important to define terms, like to define what we're talking about. Um, Probably one of the biggest hurdles um, that is shared by religious people and irreligious people so they actually have this in common, is confusion about good works or good behavior. Here's a couple questions that kind of I've heard of and had conversations about. Number one, does God lessen our sentence for good behavior? Or am I just thinking of the prison system? Right? Like that's, that's how our prison system works. If you're a really good prisoner, we'll lessen the time you have to stay in jail. Does God work on the same economy? How about this? We all know God wants us to do good, but it doesn't help us do good. Just knowing that God wants you to be good, has that ever helped you overcome your sin nature? Has it helped you overcome the temptations that knock at your door and knock at your door and crouch around you? Finally, what counts for good and how do we know if it's ever enough? I love this picture of a scale, right? How do you know if you've ever been good enough? So, Let me tell you what I believe. I believe that good works save. I believe that good works save and that being saved produces good works. Now, I said this at the beginning, we need to define terms. So let me be really, 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 really clear of what I'm talking about. Good works save, but it's not ours, it's God's. God's good works are what save sinners. Let me say that again, because that's the most important thing I want to say today. God's good works are what save sinners. So do good works save? Absolutely, but not ours. And then once saved, what is produced in a sinner's life who has been saved is plainly and simply good works. Good works flow out of that equation. They don't create it. So, We are new creations of God, and as new creations of God, once saved by His good works, we have new behaviors and we have new deeds. And these are sort of born in us and they come out of us. New desires, new powers, and freedoms that God creates in us. Let me give you two parables, and these are in your notes. You can look them up later to see what I'm talking about. But Jesus taught us this truth in stories. In Luke chapter 18, there is, it's called the Pharisee and the publican, or the Pharisee and the tax collector. And Jesus is telling us a story. It may have been something he saw, or that they were standing there watching, or he may be just sort of using representative Pharisees and tax collectors. And one is proudly 
um, trusting in, uh, in his own righteousness, and the tax collector is humble. And here's what's really interesting. Before he tells the story, Luke 18, 9 says this. He also told this parable, listen, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Who's he telling the story to? Those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Listen to this. And they treated others with contempt. Now, if you know that story, it's a very short little parable. That's exactly what the, what the story is illuminating. Not to trust yourself. So here's the point. Good works will never justify you. So Jesus says it really plainly. Good works will never justify you. You are not made righteous no matter, no matter how many good works you do. Conversely, he told of the tree and its fruit. Luke 6, uh, 43. Super economical with words. This says so much in a couple of words. For no good tree bears bad fruit. Nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. Super simple little picture from nature that we can all see every day if we're paying attention. Point When you are good, you can't help but produce good works. When you are made good by the good works of God, you actually just can't help but produce good works. It comes bubbling out of your life. Turn, I know I have you in Acts 25, turn to Ephesians 2. Some of you have this memorized. If you don't, this is a great passage to memorize. Maybe one of the top 10 to memorize. This passage sums up sort of the two-fold pillar of the gospel, that there's grace and good works, and it shows the relationship between grace and good works. It's chapter 2 of Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. I want you to get there, and I want you to look at it. Maybe in your Bible it's already been highlighted. Maybe you've already memorized this, and it's just review for you. If not, I would challenge you to do that. But Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This ancient truth that lives in your Bible, it's available to one and all, is so incredibly kind to us because it's so incredibly clear. Cease striving and know that I am God. Friend, if you are trying to earn favor with God, set it down. I pray Sundays for you, you you catch yourself either physically or like spiritually, taking giant, deep gulps of air, holding it in and letting it go. And just letting it go. This burden of performance. The fact that these two ideas are right next door to each other in the Bible is also really kind. Because... It keeps us from veering off the narrow path of sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is what leads us. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And that narrow path, we've been given doctrine, teachings, instruction, 
And if you take one of these and say, sweet, there's, it's all gift. Some of you, that will stir in your sin nature, which is like, party, hang out, right? Lay in a hammock, eat Cheetos all day. That's bad for everyone. It's fun for a short season, I suppose. <laughs> I don't know. But others of you like, sort of would, would very, very quickly veer off the other way, right? And God doesn't allow us to grab one part of this verse and build our whole life around it. He actually puts these. These aren't in opposition, but they do kind of hold intention. They are sort of guardrails for us to sort of see that these live side by, by side, that grace and good works both play a really important part in our eternal salvation and in our daily life. So, another way of saying all of this is this. We are not saved by good works, but for good works. We're not saved by good works, but for good works. Man, there's just a lot in that sentence that goes, okay, there are things to re-remember every day, every week. There are things to be doing and not doing every day and every week. This truth affects your daily life. I just jotted down a couple. There's a bunch more that you're thinking of right now. But number one is how you treat those you love and those who bug you. Good works can be used, can't they, as sort of a bargaining chip. They can be used uh, in, in some really weird, wicked ways. And if we have a misunderstanding of good works and sort of the way, the, the part that they play, um, it will affect how we treat those who you love and those who you bug. How about this? It will also affect how you interpret the good and bad parts of your day, week, month, year. The circumstances that come at you will be affected by your understanding of grace and good works of what saves you, of what God is actually doing, what he's up to in your life. You have a bad theology here. It really throws you for a loop when you're cruising along pretty good and then, boom, the bottom falls out. A storm hits and you wonder what's going on. I had my own heart exposed in this one time. I asked my beloved girlfriend who became my wife to come pick me up because my car had broken down yet again. And I was driving this old derpy car that broke down all over the place, first name basis with everyone at AAA. And I'm driving along and I'm leaving a youth event trying to get back to San Jose Christian College, the dorms where I lived. And my car goes, and just died, Meridian Avenue. And you know what the first thought out of my mind was? Here it was. Shame to admit it. Come on, God. Whew, that said a lot about me. You know what my brain, as I sat there, I, God gave me a long time to sit and think about it. My wife's, my wife's laughing because I gave her what I thought was super clear instructions of where I was. There's no find my friend thing going on back in the day. Find my friend is a phone call at a payphone somewhere. I am waiting forever. She is like half a block away, like not even that, probably a hundred yards away going where I told her to go. And I'm sitting here going, where is Becky? Come on. That's the Lord saying, nope, you still need more time, buddy. A little bit of a timeout for you. Come on, God. You know what that prayer was? That was this. God, I'm studying to be a pastor for you. God, I'm making less than minimum wage as an intern at a church for you. God, I just left working for you. I'm rushing to go do more stuff for you. And my car breaks down? That's bad theology. That's, God, you owe me. At least let my pinto run. I mean, I'm doing the Lord's work. Come on, God. So revealing, just in that one little instance. 
of where my head was at and what good works were all about and what was being worked out in my own faith. So we must be reminded and be remembering this for the rest of our life. You know why? I was thinking about this. Grace isn't the operating system of any other place in your life except for, for with God. Grace doesn't operate at all. It's not the base operating system in your school, in your job, in your natural relationships. Only in Christ is grace the base operating system. Otherwise, think about it. It really is based on performance and earning and those kinds of things. So here's the question I'm asking. What are good works good for? Okay, we're going to look at it in two chapters. We're going to go quick. Here they are. Number one, good works are no good at keeping the hard away. So what are good works good for? They're good for some things. They're not good for some things. You probably wonder, where is God when it hurts? Right? When something comes up that's really big and devastating, you, go, you, you just think in your brain, God, where are you? And there's categories for suffering. The Bible talks about this. There's the category of just the fact that we live in a cursed, fallen world. You know why Ford Pintos break down? Because it was made in 1971, and it was old, and it just broke down. Like, that's just part of life, I realized. So that's one category of suffering. We live in a broken, fallen world. People get sick, stuff breaks, bad things happen. Secondly, the Bible talks about discipline, that God disciplines those he loves. And if you were raised in a healthy family, you saw that in love, discipline happens in, in, to, to, to build up the child and to grow them up. So God uses, um, God opposes sin. Why does God oppose sin? Because it destroys his kids. So he uses discipline to weed those things out. But here's a third category. The third category is pruning pruning. Do you trust God to cut away what is dead and useless for your ultimate good? That's what pruning is all about. Now, in trying to raise up my son, my second oldest, Ethan, one time wanted to use the electric hedger in our backyard. So it's kind of this thing, you know, kind of arm about this long and blades are going back and forth. We're doing yard work. I'm like, sure, it's time for you to, you know, to try it out. So he's out there doing, I showed him some things. And all of a sudden, Ethan comes. He's already kind of pasty white. That's just his complexion. And he's even more pasty white. He's almost opaque. Like he's just disappearing in front of me. And here's what happened. He cannot stand the sight of blood. And his own blood probably like quadruples that. (laughs) And he had chopped his finger. Not off, but bad. Really bad. I saw just a bunch of white and red. Because Ethan was there just like a ghost, like sitting there. And he's not a very good pruner, I I realized. I took it away from him, and he didn't get to use it. I still don't let him use the pruner. Just kidding. It's 24. He could probably handle it now. But I was thinking about Ethan. My son's not very good at pruning. God is. God never, ever, ever cuts his own finger, and he'll never make you bleed unless it's for your good. Ever. That's the promise we have of what kind of a pruner God is. God's plan is pruning the faithful. If you are faithfully walking with the Lord, God promises he will prune you. That's a really powerful thing to hold on to. That means where is God when it hurts? He's right there. And you pray and you say, God, one of the categories is that you prune the faithful. I sure feel like I've been faithful to you. Instead of come on, God, my prayers have changed over the years. I hope they continue to change. Oh, God, I'm right in the middle of doing good things for you. In the right way, I think, in your timing. And this happens. What are you doing? 
I trust that you will cut away dead and unfruitful things so that I'll be even more fruitful for you. What are you exposing in my life? What idols are you exposing? What sin patterns? What are you doing in my life? God's plan is to prune the, faith, uh, the, the, the faithful. Here's an interesting thing. No one else on the planet can get pruned except Christians. That category of suffering is only for Christians. Chapter 25, we're not going to read it, but chapter 25 and 26 is what we're covering. Chapter 25 sort of pictures God as like Edward Scissorhands just trimming the heck out of Paul. He is getting a serious trim. Much of Acts has been Paul being pruned. The kinds of suffering he is enduring is because of a fallen world, sinners who hate the message of Jesus, but also that he's a faithful, fruitful Christian, and God keeps honing him, shaping him, uh, sharpening him for where he's headed. Most people are kind of clueless to the plan of God. And unless God reveals it to us, we, we all are as well. Much of my life, I, I'm going, God, what are you up to? But as Christians who have the Bible, we can actually see much of things. God's revealed a ton of stuff to us. When you kind of look at the trial scenes in Acts, on a human level, here's what's going on. Nero's the emperor right now. He's known for being particularly wicked and violent and gross and disgusting. He's a horrible ultimate leader in that land. And his idea with these trials is... Uh, those underlings who are trying to, to please him is keep the peace. Don't make waves. He'll, he, he'd quickly lop off my head as governor just like that if it's annoying or he's in a bad mood. So when you look at the trials and what the issues are and what's happening in all of chapter 25 and really preceding that as well, imagine if there was social media and news outlets in the day, Okay. What would the headlines and viral memes be for the Jewish side of things? Well, we don't know. We can make them up. But like, that's one set of things, right? But those who are watching and following the Roman side of things would have other headlines and viral uh, outrage and all kinds of things going on. Here's what's interesting. The Jewish side and the Roman side would be talking past each other, and neither one would have a single clue of what's actually going on. Can we pause for a second? What's happening in America? We have headlines and viral memes and outrage here. Headlines and viral memes and outrage here. Never the two shall meet. (laughs) They're just shouting and arguing and posting and liking and hating and commenting back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Could it be that neither side has a clue of what's actually going on? to the deeper, richer things of God. What is God actually doing? Paul is having a year, as they say, like his life, and he's having a life. I mean, he's just having a difficult time of things. If discipline proves sonship and the love of God, Paul might be thinking, I get it. I am the most cherished son in the world. I I know I'm yours. Can we stop with the discipline? He really has it being poured on, but here's what's actually happening. All this time in prison isn't a waste. Do you know what he does? He writes much of the Bible in prison. So while evil rulers are trying to shut this guy up and go, we don't know what to do with him, let's put him in prison, God says, perfect, you got tons of time, start writing. Write this down, this is important. And he wrote much of the Bible while sitting in prison. Not wasted time. Secondly, he is actually developing character. The things he's doing in prison were required 
to put on display later on, which we're going to see actually in chapter 26 here in a second, to put on display some of his good character required him being mistreated month after month after month after month. I could keep going. Years worth of mistreatment and exploitation. John chapter 15, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Let me show you two categories of pruning going on in Paul's life very quickly. Number one is just what I would call life layovers. How many of you are on your best behavior when you get a flight layover? Anyone? There have to be people that are, but most people are kind of torqued by it. And they're kind of outraged by it. And, and uh, air travelers in general just uh, aren't known for patience and flexibility and understanding. Those things don't really seem to, to go hand in hand. Paul is having like a life layover. It's not just delaying what he wants to get on with by an hour or two or a 24 or 48-hour period or a longer reroute somewhere else. Look at verse, uh, chapter 24, verse 27 for a second. This is leading into these two chapters. When two years had elapsed, Felix, that's the leader of the, of the Roman city, was succeeded by Portius Festus and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Two years. It's easy to read that. It's got to be hard to live that. Do you get the sense that Paul's a man of action? I mean, this is, if you know driven type A people who are like, why are we sitting around? Let's decide and go. That's Paul to the nth degree. How hard is two years of sitting in prison thinking, let's go, let's get on with it. Extra challenging for him. God had already promised him that he'd be in Rome for ministry, and yet after two long years, he's sitting in prison, even though he's innocent. Small little men are delaying him. But really what's happening, God is at work in all of this. So it's, again, I, I just, it's fascinating to sort of read a two-year prison sentence and to imagine any one of you having two weeks of your life taken from you and being detained illegally. How frustrating that would be, how many prayers would be going on, how much heart rendering, God, what are you doing? I have things to do. We can't even handle jury duty, much less a two-year misguided prison sentence. How about number two, false accusations? People go to incredible lengths to control the information and the story to guard their good name. People go to incredible lengths after something happens and they heard, wait, they said what? And people get on their phone, they get talking to every person in the world to make sure that that is not what happened. I don't know who told you what, but let me tell you. People expend vast amounts of energy to set the record straight about themselves and their actions. You know what Paul's accusers are doing? First couple, chapter, first couple of verses of 25, it's just fake news being brought against Paul. Accusation after accusation that's fake. Just made up charges. Like Jesus, Paul had nothing that they could bring, so they just made stuff up. 
Do you know that God's in, God's doing good work in the midst of that evil? When these evil people are making stuff up about Paul, again, that's actually bringing into relief. It's highlighting his behavior in all of this. It hasn't come out yet that that's a lie, but it will. God is not asleep on the job, but steering things. Now, consider with me for a moment, if if Paul has a bad theology about hard things. Let me tell you some bad theology about hard things. Here's one. God wants me healthy, happy, rich, justified, and understood at all times. That is bad theology. If that's what you are listening to, stop listening to those preachers. There's a ton of them. They've got some of the biggest churches in America. Stop listening to that. Stop reading that garbage. That's terrible theology. Just read your Bible, and you'll go, that doesn't really seem true of anyone in particular. Jesus, who was almost always misunderstood, always being treated uh, poorly, was not wealthy. He did not have fame. All these things. I think Paul had good theology about suffering, and the reason I think that is because of his actions. He lived out what he believed. He didn't work against the plan of God. God's plan includes pruning of faithful people. And we know this because he told us that. And he told us that because we need to remember that. It's not in spite of the hard, but precisely because of the hard, that God is accomplishing good things in the life of Paul. I've shown you two things. One is the Bible being written, and the other is this defense he's about to give is backed up by his life. So, good works are terrible at keeping away the heart. If you're you're trying to do good works to keep bad things at bay, stop it. That's, That's a bad reason. Here's number two. Good works are great at saving sinners. I said this at the beginning. I'll say it again. Let me be really clear. God's good works save sinners, not man's. So are good works great at saving sinners? Yes. God's good works. Chapter 26 is sort of Paul's sixth and final formal defense of the gospel. Why read Paul defend the gospel in in these formal settings? Because each of us as Christians is called to be ready to give a defense for our faith. We are called to answer our critics. I read this by C.S. Lewis today. Um, good philosophy will always exist because bad philosophy needs to be answered. I think you could swap out the word theology. Good theology will always exist because bad theology needs to be answered. So this is not the role of uh, just of pastors and missionaries and apologists. They're the ones who might be able to train and help and coach and encourage us. But all of us are called to do this. Let me ask you a question. Who would be, who do you think right now, and I want some real answers for this, who do you think would be some of the most influential people or influential person that if they could get the gospel and become a Christian, it could really send shockwaves and a lot of people would listen and hear the gospel? Let me hear some answers to that. Who? Politicians, okay? Name one. The president. Yeah. Andrew. Bill Gates, okay? One of the wealthiest guys in the world, if not the wealthiest. Who else? Who? Putin. Yeah. Who's Putin for those who may not know? 
The Russian president. Yeah, not just our president, but other, other presidents. Who else? Keep going. Elon Musk. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Think about, think about sports, music, entertainment, influencers, right? So we have an idea. Now, who has an idea about how to gain an audience with one of these people? Let's take Elon Musk, for example. Anyone have any thoughts on how we could gain an audience with Elon Musk to share the gospel with him in a meaningful way? Andrew. Revolutionize the way electricity is what? Thought of. And invite him to speak at that conference? Okay. So like a product, is that a, is that a product pitch and then we would share the gospel? Okay. Okay. Do you have his number? <laughs> just, just asking. Okay, so here's why I want to put this out. Um, when we think about, man, I, I, I've thought this before. Man, if, if that person, God, if you really got a hold of that person's life, I wonder what kind of, you know, like blast that could have on people because people look to that person for influence, whatever that may be. I bring up that thought exercise because of this. What God has done in chapter 26 to assemble the group of people that he has assembled, the good work of God, to assemble this group of people, to allow Paul to share the gospel is stunning. It's something Paul could not have pulled off. It would be just like Paul saying, or just like one of us saying, you know what would be even better is to have Elon Musk, Bill Gates, Putin, and Biden, and Kamala Harris just thrown in for good measure. And let's have Brock Purdy there. Oops, Brock Purdy's a Christian. Uh, let's have all those people there together, and let's, let's share the gospel with them. So we don't really know how to do it with one What's going, what's going on in chapter 26 is like all of those influencers are in this one place. The governor, the king and queen, the military tribunes, the leaders of the city have gathered in one place to hear from Paul. Paul is not there in power, but he's there in weakness. He's there in chains. Hard to look past a guy in chains talking at you. The unsuspecting congregation that is assembled believes that they hold the power and the authority. They think they are holding all of the cards. That's what appears to them in this, in this giant assembly. This is typical for Christians in every age. Now just picture the scene of all these people gathered, and a guard drags Paul into the room before the assembly. The irony of this scene is really, really rich. The only man in the room who is actually free is who? The guy in chains. The only one in the room holding the power is the guy in chains who looks like he has absolutely no power. The one who's calling the shots is the one who's in cahoots with the ultimate one calling the shots. It's Paul, and no one sees it except for Paul. And the boldness and the courage that's available to Paul in this moment that he puts on display is the same power that lives in us. It's available to us today. And he's the one about to speak. And when he speaks, it's pure gold. I'm going to have you read a couple bits with me. But he goes again to use his life story to show that it's God's good work that saves. And Paul had this confused. Confused. 
And he sort of builds this bridge with his accusers because just like his accusers, he was striving with all his might so he could gain favor with God. His very entrance into the kingdom of God depended on his hard work. Look at verse 4 in chapter 26. He says, My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. He says, I've been steeped in this. I'm just like you. I was trying to earn favor with God. Skip down to verse 9. He says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So after establishing common ground, hey, we aren't so different, accusers. Paul lays out the facts. Verse 12. Verse 12 just shows he wasn't on a spiritual quest. He didn't have a crisis of faith. He's actually out doing his job. He's on another mission to go round up Christians. And then in 13 through 17 is this confrontation he has by Jesus. And that's what changes everything. So read verse 14 with me. When he had fallen on the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. That's kind of like a saying of like, what do I have to do to get your attention? I've been after you for a long time. Now it's led to this. Verse 15, and I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those who which, uh, in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Pause. Paul's life changes in an instant. He's actually continuing to just lead his own life, running in the wrong direction when Jesus confronts him. And Jesus is explaining what salvation means. Good works are amazing at saving sinners. Here's what's going on. Jesus accomplished on the cross and the resurrection that people's eyes can be opened and turned from darkness to light. That they can be delivered from the power of Satan to the power of God. That they can receive forgiveness of their sins. That they are gifted a place in God's very own family. That's what's being accomplished. That's what's at stake with the good works that God has accomplished. And only Jesus' good works accomplishes these things. So again, we lodge it in our brain. I'll say it again at some future point because I will need this true. My good works don't save. I might as well try to swim to Hawaii or jump to the moon. It's nonsense. Set any notion of that down and take a massively deep breath. Say, God, I receive the grace. I'm so glad it's your works that save and not mine. That's not all. God has a part to play. We have a part to play. Some of you are like, get to our part. Here we go. Number three, good works are good for adorning the gospel. Good works aren't the gospel. If you're just doing good works around people, they'll have no idea how to be saved. They will remain in the power of Satan. They will remain in darkness. Good works are not the gospel, but your good works, your good life, your good behavior, your beautiful uh, picture of how you're living adorns the gospel. It decorates it like a Christmas tree and it draws attention to it. 
Paul's on trial, and it's not only for his words, but his life, his responses. So it is with us. When you're in the court of public opinion, the court of family opinion, relational opinions, they are looking at you, and you don't just stand on truth, you display the truth. If you spout good theology but live bad theology, guess what? Which one's going to weigh out in their mind? Your actions. Actions speak louder than words. So we're not only to stand on the truth, but put it on display. Paul's been wasting away unjustly, even as a Roman citizen and a super, like, rising the ranks Pharisee. So think of these two groups that are in front of him, opposing him. He actually has high rank with both of them. And now he's being given a chance to speak, and it's all about Jesus? It's all about the real hero? This guy is living for something totally different. He's modeling what Peter would instruct in 1 Peter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Keep your conduct honorable, so not if, but when they speak evil of you, and they will, they'll actually give glory to God. So Paul's own good works provide for him in the moment of his defense, even the way this court scene is going. The powerful of this world have him on trial for his life, and his demeanor and his character shine through. Look how he remains poised and even winsome and comical, even... um, Uh, even as he's kind of pointedly calling out this king, this person of high position, to a decision for Christ. Look at verse uh, 24. Paul gets done saying all these things, and it says, As he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you uh, out, of, out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to become a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God, not only that you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. I want everyone in the hearing of this room to become a Christian like I am, completely free. Oh, except for these chains. I'd rather you not have this part of it. He is pointing and calling for a decision. You know what's powerful about this? No groveling to be let go. No complaining and whining about his mistreatment. Paul is others-focused. Paul says, man, I I know you believe. He's directing this to the king. I know you believe this. You're familiar with this stuff. This gospel was not done in a corner of secret. This is historical. Guys, this is our story too. This is our defense as well. Let me walk down to the fourth one here. Good works are a good indication that you are in Christ. Paul describes how he was totally devoted to what he thought was true. He's a man of convictions. He lives his convictions. His conviction was, Jesus is a false prophet and must be stopped. Once he got the truth, he lived out his conviction in a brand new way. In fact, a totally opposite way. But he still was the same guy. He lived out what he believed. Verse 19 and 26 says this. 
Therefore, O King Agrippa, I, did not diso- uh, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. That's Jesus appearing to him. But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem and throughout the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Let me give you an incredibly portable picture of what salvation looks like. These few words, repent and turn to God, and then performing deeds in keeping with repentance. Repent and turn to God. The good news is not just good news. It is a summons to repentance. I love these testimony scenes in the scriptures Both times that we see really powerfully where he gives an extended testimony, he calls for a decision from his hearers. This is so important in our age because over and over and over you can say, people can't argue with my decision and my conversion, all that, and you'll give it to them and they'll say, good for you, I love that, I like that. Good job, that's your story. And it actually leaves people in a more dangerous position. Here's why. They say, oh, I've heard the gospel, thank you very much. Paul, in both these instances in Acts, he's looking at the king. I know you believe this king. He is calling for a decision. I'll tell you, it's very easy to share your testimony with someone. It is very challenging to get that last 5% right and say, what about you? You know why? That's where your blood pressure goes up. That's where their blood pressure goes up. That's where this gets a little bit like challenging. That's where you might risk the comfort of relationship in that moment. But repent and turn to God says something really clear. Something is wrong with you. Something is wrong with you. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is what? It's death. I'm telling you to repent because you're running off of a cliff. Saying repent and turn to God means something is wrong with you. You are under an inescapable death sentence. But here's the second thing that says. Repent because something's wrong with you and turn to God. It means things can change. Isn't that powerful? If repent for the kingdom of heaven is near works for Jesus, shouldn't that be included in our evangelism? Shouldn't that be first of mind when we're sharing our testimony or trying to get people to think about God? Repent says things are wrong and things can change. The curse is not permanent. 2 Corinthians 5 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sins, Jesus, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, a changed tree from the inside out. So number one part of the gospel, repent and turn to God. What's the second part? Bear fruit. You want to know what a Christian looks like? They repent and turn to God, and they bear fruit. They can't help themselves. You are possessed by the Holy Spirit as a Christian. You can't help yourself. So God's good works saves us, which, produce, which produces good works. Matthew had some really spicy warning for the, the Pharisees, these religious leaders. He says, who warned you to repent? And he says this, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't come down here and be baptized. Don't come down here and do a bunch of talk. Just go do good works that show you've repented and received the forgiveness of God. And here in this, we see the call to bear fruit. Let me have the band come on up. Church today, potentially this week, you and I are going to meet opposition and persecution We might face false accusation. We might be exploited for our faith. 
And the question is, will we stand in the trial of cultural courts or will we stay silent, shrink back? There are high priests of sort of a moral revolution that will charge you with heresy simply for being a Christian. People will indict us for holding antiquated beliefs which oppose a new post-Christian status quo. We live in a Western culture that views Christian dogma as diametrically opposed to the vision of what progress and beauty looks like. This is exactly what Romans 1 talks about. That which is wicked, the world will call beautiful. And the very thing that is utterly stunningly beautiful, the world will call disgusting, hateful, bigoted. Close your eyes and pray with me. God, we want to be a people willing to show off how good and glorious you are, that we are living for another kingdom under a totally different rule simply by the way that we live, speak, spend our money and our time and our energy. God, we have been given the power, the same power. We have the power and this is the mission. God, you have left us here on purpose. Just like you saved Paul to a purpose, God, you have saved us for a good work. Help us not to complicate that today. There are good works to walk in today. So God, we commit to do that. Quicken our step. Keep our eyes on you. And God, help our motives to be just completely out of the response of the favor that we have not to earn favor with you. We thank you. We thank you that that's how you set it up. In Jesus' name we pray.